Audacious Compassion, Episode 6, Working with the Fawns. Toothpaste, lemonade, polka dots and stripes, you're a dark night, and I'm the day, we're a wreck and that's all. Hello, and welcome to Audacious Compassion, a podcast where we explore how to find compassion in the most difficult places in daily life. I'm Melissa Avery Weir. And I'm Gregory Avery Weir. And today, we'll be talking about what compassion looks like in a frustrating team setting. Uh, But first, by popular request, we now have a Twitter account. Yay! Yay! We are at AudaciousCast. And make sure you spell audacious correctly. Just because I had a little bit of trouble putting it into our notes. <laughs> um, and feel free to send us prompts there, and we'll be keeping an eye out. Yep. So, Gregory, how have you been doing? Uh, I've been all right. Uh, <laughs> holiday time, winter time is always a little tricky. I've been working pretty hard lately on adulting. Uh, that sounds like something that might increase our rating on iTunes. <laughs> no, no, so like being an adult, like <laughs> like doing doing the, the standard chores that society expects us to do and that I assume everyone has some amount of trouble with. Like insurance and taxes. Yeah, and... yeah. I, I, I did my health insurance sign up, which... For people who are not in the United States <laughs> and have um, efficient and have you know a decent <laughs> healthcare system um, in the U.S., <laughs> this is better than it was before. But there, you basically go to a website, and at least in where we are in the states, have four to nine really expensive options that are pretty much similar, and none of them are very good right. for for health insurance. And just this is if you don't aren't getting it through your job, right? Yeah. Yeah, and even if you're getting it through your job, it's not. Right. It's complicated and not great. Yeah. I have a lot of anxiety and self doubt and avoidance around a lot of those tasks, those getting official documents and and making sure that that I get the proper things for life. You know, I put off getting groceries, I, uh, all sorts of things, and it has this really unpleasant feedback loop where I get frustrated that I haven't done the thing and that makes me have trouble accepting that and so that makes me less likely to do it because I'm feeling bad. One of the things that I've been working on is is that that self-empathy, like that compassion towards myself of being like, yeah, that's that's a tricky thing, like going online and figuring out how many hundreds of dollars a month I'm going to be spending on health insurance is hard and that's okay. Yeah. Especially if you just do it. Like, I don't have to feel bad about myself for not doing it. Yeah. Especially, I don't, you don't want to be the thing, well, maybe I don't deserve health insurance because I'm not able to do it. You know, like. In fact, that might be a reason to ensure that you have it. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, especially, you know, mental health. And I think that I'm very willing to accept the consequences for my mistakes and maybe less willing to take efforts to not make mistakes. Yeah. But one of the things that I've been trying to do is is recognize those patterns, recognize that my feelings are important and that they're right. Like I am scared and that's fine. Yes. Like that fear is genuine and is my mind and body telling me that it 
has some needs that are not being met and yeah. I can I can process that and accept it and move forward instead of just getting tied up in those feelings of frustration and knotted emotion and all that. Right. So and I'm not... You don't sit there with the, with the healthcare.gov tab up and uh, 50 other tabs uh, doing any other thing. I mean, hardcore confession time. Uh, oh, no. Somehow oh. my... My account credentials for healthcare.gov were invalid, like I, my password was wrong or something, oh. um, and my security questions weren't working. Oh. So I did not sign into healthcare.gov in 2015. Oh, because you let your plan I let my roll over. I let my plan roll over and didn't review my options that year because I I would have had to call and the calling took like five minutes. It was really simple. It's better than when I called. Yeah, you, you got stuck in a queue, but yeah. but I was I I got in pretty fast. But it's like I literally put off signing in for like two years, right? Yeah, which which is incredibly embarrassing. But when I get caught up in these in these loops, I I procrastinate, and I'm working on that. How are how are you doing? I'm also doing all right. Um, <laughs> I had. An incident recently at work that reminds me very much of this topic. We recently did a new release of this application that I work on. And in preparation for that, we did testing, both kind of quality assurance and user acceptance testing, where you kind of go back to the person or people who originally told you what to do, and they look at your application and say, yes, this does the thing that I expect it to do. All the boxes are checked. And theoretically, they've kind of been looking as it's happening, right? Right, yes. They've been seeing demos. They've even been messing with it themselves, ostensibly. But we had this this significant component that was hard to write and kind of high risk um, of breaking other things in the application. But the testing got put off until nearly the end. Mm, but that sort of thing happened in my day job. Yeah, it's really frustrating. And it, it, it kind of put us in a bind where if the feedback wasn't good... We were going to have to push the release, which is never a situation you want to be you, in. You'd have to actually move the schedule back. Right. So you, you had time to fix the so issues. So you had time to fix it, which of course is incentive for the tester to not find things. So that's, right. that's just a bad setup. Which means that you're not going to find things that are important if they are there. Right. So I, I was already kind of frustrated at the whole situation. And then the person testing it didn't start testing it until after the deadline for me to get feedback. And then didn't seem to understand the requirements. And so it was kind of like this whack-a-mole situation of all these all these messages coming in saying, I don't think this is right. I don't think this is right. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You, you told us that you wanted it to do this. And, you know, I can point right back to the requirements I posted, you know, to verify. And it was, I was frustrated with them for taking so long to start testing. I was frustrated by a lack of thoroughness. And then I was frustrated by the fact that if anything serious had come back, I would have been stuck either shifting my hours around to try to get the release still on the right date or pushing back the release so it was... and, and as software developers we know there are always problems it's just a question of how big they are right a question of how big they are and who's going to find them right <laughs> and you hope that these people find it instead of your end users even though this is an internal project it's still something between embarrassing and awkward for your colleagues to find these things so the the thing that i always have to keep in mind with this project is that to everybody else this is a very low priority project when they're on the phone, they say it's an important project, because it is. But when it comes to, I'm working on 10 things, and everything needs my attention, this project falls near the bottom. 
Yeah. And you're, this is the only thing you're doing at work. So exactly. this is your top and only priority. Exactly. Which puts me kind of in a weird place when I need things from people. And so I try to have a lot of empathy because I've been on the other side of this. I've been the person with 10 projects and a contractor with only one. And they are super busy. These people are always double and triple booked for meetings and review sessions and so on. So I do have a fair amount of empathy and compassion for them. But holy crap, could he have not like done this a little earlier? (laughs) So that seems to fit very well with this theme today. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds, that sounds rough. Yeah. So our prompt today that we received via Twitter, via Twitter. Yay. It's very exciting. Was this, how do you stay compassionate? When you're frustrated with work and also a coworker, who you might not even like that much. And that's from Ornamental Hermit, Slinger Tail on Twitter. That question, how do you stay compassionate, could go a lot of directions. Because a lot of the time we say, I'm trying to be compassionate here. And we can mean a bunch of different things. Yeah, and compassionate, maybe this has always been the case, but I I guess I've noticed it more recently in the last few years, kind of becomes an umbrella term for anything from politeness to civility to like a rudimentary or cursory understanding of the other person's position. Like, I know they're busy. I'm being compassionate, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not quite what that means. I think for you and me, it's kind of comes close to like the linguistics of the word genuinely understanding what the other person is feeling and their and why they're feeling that way right is kind of how we think of compassion right like not just understanding their stance yeah not not their argument or their philosophical bent right but like what what's actually like in the moment what are the, what's their state exactly and caring about that like actually yes yeah giving a damn is is the compassionate part yeah it's empathy if you are able to successfully model their state it's compassion if you care <laughs> <laughs> yes but there are all these other things under that umbrella. At least colloquially under that umbrella. Yeah, yeah. That when people, when general people say compassion, they mean a bunch of different things. That That's sort of politeness or civility, which I think uh, a few episodes ago we... Kicked that to the curb. <laughs> yeah, well, so, so I think what we said then is politeness is sort of like doing what's expected of you. Civility is meeting a minimum level of kindness. Right. right? Civility is acting in a way that will maintain a community as functional. Right. politeness is often things like say please and thank you say ma'am or don't say ma'am right. and hold we, doors open or don't hold doors open yeah we talked about politeness particularly with regards to power structures which is pretty much what politeness is seems yeah to it almost always upholds those existing powers or you you are polite to your superiors but right. your boss can be pretty damn rude to you and still be called polite because they're the one in charge right so I think it's important to know what you mean. Much like with that with that sort of political question a couple of months ago, I think it's okay to decide you want to be polite. Yeah. But just to be polite because it is expected? I, I think we should all examine things we do just because they're expected. Yeah, what, what do I actually want to do? Right. And if you, I mean, if all you need is civility and that's all you have the energy for, maybe even, like, you know, that can come down to, like, what can you do in a day? Yeah. Civility you... in this case, basically just being, don't say something that will make someone angry. 
Right, and perhaps don't be openly sullen in dealing with them. Yeah, it doesn't mean hide your feelings, it just means... Don't lay all the negative ones out. Yeah, just, you know, you can can have them, you can even show them, but don't let them strongly color how you're how you're behaving yeah i guess i shouldn't call certain emotions negative yeah yeah all emotions are yeah cool they're just some of them are really hard to deal with right yeah there's there's this cultural obligation that we have in a work setting where everyone expects you to behave a certain way right and sometimes that's sort of to make everyone's lives easier and sometimes it's sort of perpetuating some of the nastier parts of the work system right yeah like to work in a corporate culture which i'm I'm kind of guessing that this is happening in you have to put up with a certain amount of bullshit right like that is that is capitalism yeah Um, and you you it kind of stems to you need to eat so you need money so you need a job if you lose your job you'll have some time when you don't have income and so Anything you do is essentially threatening you with starvation if you if you exactly. mess up. Exactly. So we're we're you know expected to tolerate a certain amount of crap at work, but how much you're expected to tolerate varies quite widely by job, by culture, by industry, and by the identities of the people working there. Yeah. Like I've worked a place where they brought in a, a manager who was a quote unquote tell it like it is manager. Yeah, that's the worst kind. Very nearly. And so you're you're suddenly everyone is expected to take a lot more crap because mm-hmm. this obviously this company needed this person. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like we That's usually a euphemism for will be rude when they tell you your problems. <laughs> right. Yeah, pretty much exactly. I, I've never worked outside the United States. I've never mm-hmm. lived outside the United States. I would not be surprised if the cultural norms around how you treat your colleagues changes outside of the United States. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely seen coworkers of different nationalities, especially when they were part of a contracting company that's based elsewhere. Yes. The way they interact among themselves is very different than, than how we interact. And, and actually, I think, in my experience, the U.S. is more kind with that. Like, uh, I've seen people be very, very rude or what I'm perceiving as rude. I mean, maybe they're following cultural norms that are making that feel softer. But yeah, but yeah there's there's a lot of differences in expectations yeah. there. There are no hard and fast rules we can lay down, certainly. To, yeah, to like not, like not like rules of manners, like, yeah, you know, like make sure to use the right fork. I mean, I have been called out for being merely civil at work. Really? Oh, yeah, it was, a, it was a rough time. I hated my job. I did not like many of my colleagues. And after a couple of months of that, one of my managers pulled me off and said, like, you seem really dissatisfied. Maybe be a little more cheerful. Oof. It was, I mean, it was pretty much smile, right? Right. How much do you think that was tied to gender? Oh, this was, a, this was so long ago and at a place that was very tech industry. So fraught with gender and so on. I don't know. I took it. To a certain amount of heart, like, I went ahead and re-examined how I was behaving and determined, was I projecting the mood of professionality that I wanted to project for the role I had? And I changed up a couple things, but, like, screw that. Like, to a certain extent. But, I mean, I think it was valuable. I was only a couple years in the industry, like... Yeah, I guess it, it comes down to sort of this, what do you mean by being compassionate and so on? Like, make sure you're behaving in alignment with your values. Exactly. How do you want to come across in the job, and what do you do in order to accomplish that? Yeah. Remembering that compassion means giving a damn. Yeah. You don't have to do what people expect you to do. You only have to do what matches your values. Right. 
Which I would hope would include not being cruel. Right. And I mean, despite the title of this podcast, you don't have to care. Right. Yeah, you don't have to actually care how your coworkers feel. Like... Yeah, like... They... You have to be there to it, basically. Right. They also have to be there. Right. You can just get along. (laughs) And it's it's incredibly helpful to at least empathize, right? Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise you kind of become... a. That colleague that's like, everybody else is dumb, or yeah. no one else is good at their job. Empathy like, helps you understand what is going on. And in my experience, it's always be- better to understand yes. a situation instead of just being confused and angry. Right. So I guess we're transitioning from what do you mean, what do you want, and into how do you get that. Yeah. So that frustration is something I'm definitely familiar with. It's a it's a feeling that's, that is sort of closed in and mm-hmm. and full of like feedback loops and feel trapped builds on itself yep and it it feels like it feels like nothing can change that right like yeah it's not even just like status quo it's like a box that you're in yeah if if it's just this is a crappy situation i have to deal with that's not frustrating that's just you know, an annoyance or yeah. or anger inducing. Like, but it's frustration when it gets to the point where you're like, I don't I can't do anything. Right, yeah. It feels like status quo is like a conveyor belt and yeah. frustration is a small box that you're yeah. inside of. <laughs> like, or or the, the, the baggage claim conveyor belt got clogged and all the bags <laughs> are just piling up on each other and you see that coming right. forever. forever. <laughs> I think one of the things that that I kind of hooked on with this question was the fact that this person is frustrated both with work and the coworker. Yeah. So it's not just like my team isn't gelling, but it's like my team isn't gelling and holy crap, this thing we're working on is frustrating too. Yeah. It's, it's, it's also kind of frustration is a thing that can affect everything around you. Like you get right. frustrated with one thing and then everything else starts bugging you and then it just builds and builds. And if there's a lack of consensus, or perhaps too much consensus, so <laughs> if everyone thinks the project is frustrating, then you have an unhappy team. Right. If only a couple people think <laughs> that the work is frustrating, then you have a, a similar problem of like a push-pull with regards to morale and attitude. So I think this is hard to do in the moment. So like fully acknowledging that. I recommend finding ways to make the work less frustrating or to sort of disrupt what makes it frustrating if you can change the work and maybe this is depending on the industry this could be building a tool to help like software you know you might build a sort of a helper application to do something for you like getting a bin to be your inbox on your desk for all the papers that are coming in sorting it better right if what's frustrating is maybe the process around work Um, And I'm thinking possibly even a physical process of sorting and organizing, changing that up a little bit. But again, that's the thing where sometimes it just feels like that's not possible, right? Like you're hemmed in by the requirements of your job. And you don't want to do it in a way that sort of feeds that frustration. Right. So let's, let's say if it doesn't feel like you can change your, what your actual job is or what the work is that's frustrating, doing things like taking breaks, finding ways to put fun around the work if the work can't change. And I, fun. I yeah, I've never uh, been that sort of person who's like, I've got a fun job. It's like, yeah. There's we, we make video games. Yeah, like our fun. video game work is pretty fun. Some, sometimes. Yes. Yes. It's but still like, work. <laughs> having done that, making a website for someone else that I don't care about, right, isn't 
gonna be fun. But I've worked places where me and a colleague would often go out for a walk around a pond at work. And so whatever the weather is, assuming it wasn't pouring rain, like you got to get up, you got to move, you got to take a break. We were sometimes talking about work, so it, you know, it kind of counted, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. But just that break really, really helped. Things like that, things like taking time to, to doodle or taking breaks for coffee and tea or just to talk with your colleagues, maybe finding middle ground or some some ground at all with the colleague that you don't particularly like very much. Yeah, and unless unless you've got a really rough and toxic work environment, you can probably say to yourself and possibly to others, if I take five minutes out right now, I will be I will save fifteen minutes of spinning my wheels because I am stuck in this 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 feeling right because going out and walking means you're not frustrated during that time hopefully like you're able to shed that yeah. and then at least you're starting that frustration anew right, right? and yes. it hasn't it you've diffused that feedback loop right what about this this coworker that they might not even like that much which oh, to me right. sounds like code for i really really dislike this person right <laughs> i have certainly had very strong feelings about coworkers, and it, it ranges from I don't like their work to I don't like this person. Yeah, there's like they're annoying to me, and then there's like they have said hateful things about me specifically. Right, and that's rough. It's almost harder when it's about the work because, like, okay, so let's say again, software engineering, right? So people are contributing code to a project. If they're contributing bad work. Or just refusing to comply with kind of the team consensus on how to do things. Yeah, it's, it's not just rough to deal with them as a person. It also, like, makes your work take longer. Right. It's actively pushing you back down the stairs. Yes. And that, that oh, that's hard. Because if it's, if it's personal, like, we kind of have cultural mechanics for dealing with people yeah. we don't like. Especially in workplaces. Aggressive politeness and avoidance. <laughs> yes. Hey. <laughs> Sal. <laughs> How was your evening? But when it's when it's work, we kind of have we have fewer outlets for that because you could if you talk to your manager, then you're going over their heads, right? Mm -hmm. Like and then their your boss might bring it back to them and be like, let's all have a talk about this how they don't mm -hmm. like how you work. And that just gets really awkward. I've done that too. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes that's the way to go. Sometimes. But but I don't trust our work culture to mm -hmm. do that correctly. Yeah. It's a very manager by manager type of thing. But yeah, that feeling of dislike, like frustration can like, you can fixate on how much this person bugs you. Yes. And like, even if they're not around, it's like they are around because you're imagining what it's like when they are there. Exactly. And that's a, that can trap you. And that feeling. And it's very easy because, you know, we, we build models of people and we predict their responses and we predict what they're thinking accurately or otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's very easy for us to start spending time imagining what this person is doing mm -hmm. or how they are reacting to situations that they're not even in. Yeah. When they find out about this, they'll say this and then I'll do this and then they'll come back with this. And that's right. that's just preposterous. And then you're angry about something that's... yep entirely in your head or imagining conversations in which you tell them off mm -hmm. or them 
failing in a massive way. Like, you know, you just kind of like start spending this mental energy, even in your downtime doing this. And this was a major problem for me when I was teaching. Mm, especially because <laughs> kids like, yeah, you can't. It was a completely impotent fantasy. Like I was never going to tell these kids off because they were right. children. And they're kind of not responsible in a certain way for. Oh, right. Like to a certain extent. Um, and Far it's... more victims of their environment right. than, than adults are. So yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a energy wasting and spiraling thing. Because once you, I think once you start to kind of assume bad motives and perpetuate the idea of, of bad motives, especially simplistic bad motives, this is a bad person. This is a hateful person. Everything they do is hateful. Therefore, this is a bad person, right? Like you just Mm -hmm. kind of, you build this thing. It makes it so much easier to do that for other people. Then you start going, people like this. Yeah. Act this way. You so start you... with this single person yes. who's probably genuinely a problem. Right. At least but with it's... your interactions with you. But also is a complex person. Right. Right. And then you move on to dismissing people that you wouldn't have had a problem with if it wasn't for this model that you'd set up. Right. Um, and that's that's just a bad way to live. Like yeah. it living in that healthy. kind of perpetually diagnosing, like, mm-hmm. oh, this trait, this one, this person is socially awkward, which means I've dealt with socially awkward people, and that's horrible. And you start to, like, paint this whole, your whole world. Many of your interactions become colored by this. First the, impressions get Yeah, ruined. the more you're interacting with those stereotypes, the le- less success you're going to have. Right. Because you're not actually examining what you're seeing right empathy and compassion need to be close to the actual person to be useful and to be real yeah compassion for a model of a person isn't worth very much yeah it's it's a useful exercise to speculate right but when you're dealing with an actual like person you can interact with it's better to go to the primary source right like you can i mean you like if so let's say you're looking at like the general refugee crisis Mm -hmm. right like Obviously, you're not dealing with an individual and you kind of, you have to kind of model the situation and, and things like that. But like, there's a person probably sitting next to you or just on the other end of the phone. And so you can, you can actually interact with the person instead of painting that picture. So if I've got this coworker that's like obnoxious and just bugs me and it kind of in an irreconcilable way. Right. How do I not get trapped in that loop? Do I just give up on them? So I think you have to, I think you want to move from that sort of active dislike to a more passive, I just don't want to be around them. So kind of just give up on them, like... Or accept. Accept. Yeah, I guess that's a better way to put it. So like, okay, so establish boundaries and then accept the rest. Mm -hmm. So like if there's something that they're actually, so if there's something they're doing that is not okay that you like do not consent to partaking in don't slap me on the shoulder every time you walk past my desk like don't touch me just tell them don't touch you but like they're gonna say hey like (laughs) (laughs) like like you work and the happy do you work with the fonts is (laughs) i have at times worked in overly social environments then social you just ignore it right like like there's probably not a boundary being violated there unless maybe there is right like i can think of any number of reasons why sudden loud noise yeah (laughs) it's not a thing but like they chew gum at work and that's gross like accept it like let it go and and kind of distance yourself a little bit from the emotional impact of their behavior because it's probably not really your business maybe yeah like they get to they get to act how they get to act as long as it's not like 
infringing on your self right. directly, then like, yeah, they've got bad taste in shoes or can't eat interesting food. Or That's... have or have weird verbal tics, right? Like, th- there can be things where, like, you're in a meeting with this person and they, they hum a certain way or... Yeah. And you just want to, like, shake it, the shit out of them. It <laughs> sounds almost anti-compassionate to say... Well, that's just how they are. Just accept that and move on. Right. Like, it feels like that's closing yourself off, but I... The way I would look at it, which, and it will sound super, like, woo-woo or whatever, but, like, accepting people for how they are encourages you to just open your eyes and to see them instead of trying to box people in. Yeah, stop wishing that they were something else or trying to make them into something else. Right. See how they are. And then, like, that verbal tick is something that they do. Now you can actually look at the other stuff they're doing instead of just focusing on, you know, the fact that they say A all the time and wear those leather jackets and keep <laughs> elbowing the jukebox. Yeah, so it's it's... I wouldn't say, like, just focus on the good, because that's... Yeah, no, that's, not, no. Yeah, no. don't do that. But try to see the whole picture. Yeah, with, with as much time as you've spent spinning on this thing that frustrates you about that person, you probably understand that thing really well. Very well. And you can be like, okay, that's understood. I'll file that away. I know how I feel about that part. Yeah. Let's move on to things that I might not see as clearly. Yeah. It's like trying to see the beauty in the world. Like, you don't ignore all the bad things happening at all but you can also kind of see like the coolness of the complexities of the world and that's true of people as well yeah so how do we sum that up as a way to address this problem we just talked for a while about the complexities of things don't uh, don't have a sum it all up in a sentence now right but like <laughs> this person asked how do you stay compassionate when you're frustrated with work and a coworker who you might even not even like that much like decide what the goal in your presentation is right like yeah what what do you want yeah do you want politeness civility are you wanting to dig down and find compassion and empathy and Um, it's fine if the answer is no i just want to get along right or temporary job or whatever you can't be compassionate with everyone in the world all at once right so determine what you want and what your value, whatever that is in line with your values. Do what you can to remove obstacles to that. If, if there's frustrations you can address, it's always worth it to do that. Or to go on walks and just calm down from that frustration for a bit. Bring a fidget toy to work yeah. or, you know, things like that. And then com- use the combination of those to try to move from that churning, active dislike into something where you can see the broader complexities of the person simmer down and focus on more than just the angry parts yeah so what have you been inspired by lately melissa uh has it been anything interesting uh i have been watching yuri on ice that's the ever popular uh, ice figure skating um, anime yes so i i'm so proud of this show it took down Crunchyroll and Tumblr on its season finale, which was just a few days ago. So this is not a Yuri show, which is a, a show about lesbians. Right. It is a show about a couple people named Yuri? Yeah. Um, there's, there's, yes, there's, there's the Japanese Yuri, there's the Russian Yuri, and then a coach named Victor. And so, yeah, it's male figure skating, which is a strange thing to have a show about, especially a sports show, I think, <laughs> from an inspiration standpoint. <laughs> I could talk about the show all day. The the coach, when he kind of starts setting up 
with with Yuri is one of those people that like smiles real big and then says something really rude, which is a I, I think a, a thing that happens in anime a decent amount. There's you know, there's a competitive element to this because it is figure skating, and it's an adorable show. It's just an absolutely adorable show. So you've got this coach that can be rather cutting at times, and then you have you know, the the main character Yuri is kind of a failed competitor. So he gets to this these highest levels of competition, um, and then completely washes out into fourth, mm. fifth, sixth. Like never so almost good enough. Almost good enough. Calls himself a dime a dozen male skater in Japan. For him, the work itself is something he loves, but is very frustrating because he kind of has always looming over his head that yes, he can do this quadruple lutz when he's practicing, but as soon as he gets on ice of the competition, he's gonna fail. Mm. And good old Victor inspires him to do better so not only do i just i don't know i just find this adorable and the season finale incredibly frustrating but i don't watch a lot of sports anime yeah that's this whole subgenre of sports anime about street racing or yeah. the game go i watched kaleidostar back in the day i guess that's kind of a sports anime it's, it's about sp- circus performance that's a sport and so i don't know it's the perpetually upbeat environment the fact that you have these people who are competitors and presumably there's money behind these competitions mm-hmm. there's not really much talk of of the finances of what's going on that have plenty of reason to want to tear each other down mm. but don't and have banquets together and and kind of get along anyway and at, based on the twitter responses of the skaters that <laughs> the yuri on ice people are modeled after seems to be a pretty pretty friendly culture anyway yeah they so. all seem pretty upbeat um so i don't know I, I find it inspiring to to kind of see examples of places where this anime could be really mean to all to each person like they could put each other down and have this really negative culture um, um, and aside from russian yuri being a little grumpy everything is pretty cheery so i like it what about you? What have you been inspired by? Well, something, um, something far more serious than your. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's 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 lighthearted, but yeah, it's 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 kind of a, a deep topic. I've been reading Queer: A Graphic History, done by Meg John Barker and Julia Scheele, or maybe Sheely. This is a book that that I was turned on to by Ojoy Sex Toy, which is a, a webcomic that that does sex toy reviews and then also some book reviews and so on. Also webcomic. And this is a sort of history and explanation of queer theory. Not like the history of queer people or queer rights, but of, of queer theory, which is sort of this academic discipline or social movement that is dedicated to the examination and disruption of taxonomies and of putting things in boxes and of saying, no, gender works this way and sexuality works this way. Yeah. And it's helped things gel in my mind that I'd been struggling with understanding. Yeah. So one of one of the early things in the book was was an explanation of why a lot of queer theorists are frustrated with identity politics. Ah, yes. Uh, identity politics is where you say I am a I am black. I am Yeah. I am black and black people need this and therefore give us this. Yes. And the the argument in the queer graphic history is by fixing yourself as a certain identity, you make it difficult f- to escape that. Right. You're saying black people need this and then a system gets set set up to provide black people that. And so from then on, if you want that benefit, you need to be a black person and behave as society expects a black person to behave. Right. And and one of the lovely things about the book is it also acknowledges that that perspective itself is not ideal. Right. Like 
Sometimes identity politics is a great strategic thing. Mm -hmm. Like, if marriage equality is a thing you care about, it is the case that presenting gay and lesbian people as these normal individuals that behave just like you, except maybe they have slightly (laughs) different, perfectly socially acceptable people that they want to marry, that was a successful tactic to get marriage equality. Now, it also creates all these other problems, yeah. but the, the book is, is very, very well points out that just like you can't lump people into this person is gay or this person is straight or this person is, is this race, mm-hmm. um, you also can't say this tactic is bad, this tactic is good. It's a very interesting look at sort of the history of this movement and the history of the construction of sexuality, like the fact that heterosexuality in opposition to homosexuality the both of those concepts were invented in the in the 1800s ah like you you did not have heterosexuality there was no such thing as being straight before people invented the concept of being gay yes the the book highlights that queer is something you do not something you are mm-hmm. you do things which queer the norm normal narrative yes and that does not necessarily make you queer, except in the context that someone who is queer is someone who queers, who does queer things. <laughs> so it's a it's a very cool book. It talks about Foucault and the the concept of the panopticon. Yes. Which is sort of the, the original panopticon was this prison where the guards could look at you at any time. And so you always had to act as if the guards were watching you. Yep. And we talk about that in our modern time as part of the surveillance state. Like when you've got a camera on you all the time, you need to not commit crimes. Mm-hmm. But queer theory also talks about it. And apparently Foucault kind of originally intended it to be about how because society is always monitoring you and might notice something unusual you do, you become your own warden. You guard your own behavior ah. to keep from acting out of line yes. because you no longer even need that punishment anymore because you yourself are keeping yourself in that box yeah and mm. kind of picking an identity and fixing to that identity means that you then police your behavior in relation to that identity yeah so it's it's really interesting i've i've thought of it a lot as we've been talking about how do you demonstrate compassion and how are you polite at yeah, work which is a self-policing yeah thing yeah it's am i good enough am i behaving right mm-hmm. I, even even asking the question am i behaving in line with my values is inherent i mean that is self-policing that right is, yeah. yeah um and you've probably picked your values or have developed your values uh, in the context of some society, <laughs> mm-hmm. and therefore are negotiating that space. It kind of comes down to, like, try to act in line with your values, but sometimes you won't. Right. And that's part of being a person. Right. You can't always be that one ideal thing, and that ideal thing isn't ideal and doesn't exist. Right. But yeah, I highly recommend Queer, A Graphic History. Do the authors good. again? Um, we'll link the, to it, but... Yeah, it's Meg John Barker and Julia Scheel. I also highly recommend Yuri on Ice. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I'll need, I need to check it out because I haven't seen any of it. Okay. Well, I'll need yes. to watch at least one episode. Yes. So any final thoughts on this person with a frustrating work situation? Or especially at a time of the year right now when we encounter not necessarily frustrating work situations, but mm. frustrating... 
interpersonal situations. Ah, yes. Seeing family that maybe we haven't seen for a while, or just dealing with the stress of presence and it being very dark outside mm-hmm. and it being cold if you're in the northern hemisphere i guess i guess it's also not dark not dark if you're in the southern hemisphere too this is true but just sort of that often enforced friendliness and civility yeah like being being civil with family that you perhaps don't otherwise like um, yeah yeah. I think the same stuff applies, right? Like I think so too. Yeah, like not not wasting mental energy churning over people's behavior. Find a way to escape that cycle. Yep. Make sure that you're you're worrying about things that you actually care about rather than acting as you think you're supposed to. Right. If the if the the work, quote unquote, being done is frustrating, try to break those barriers down. Um I remember just the awkwardness of five people cooking in a kitchen at the same time. Mm. for holiday meals mm. just like don't yeah take Those, a break do the it the other four probably have it under control yeah do worst break. case you have one fewer pie <laughs> which is a tragedy but <laughs> right an everyday tragedy do it early do it late mm. yeah do it in another room and then put it in the oven yep whatever so i think the same things apply it's harder like when it's when it's someone like we can often feel that family should know us mm-hmm. better but they're just people who have a limited amount of time, and if you haven't opened yourselves up to each other, or perhaps especially if you have, it can be mm-hmm. difficult for them to know you, and it can be difficult to deal with rejection, or what feels like rejection. And especially with family of adults, like, they're the closest people to you that don't know you at all. Right. Like, people that you actually don't actually see that much, but yeah. you think of as these intimate Mm-hmm. Social connections. Yeah. So yeah, work, so, family, good luck with family, all that. Good luck. It's coming out on Christmas. So. Yep. <laughs> and in the middle of Hanukkah, or second day of Hanukkah. Well, Gregor, thank you for uh, talking to me today. Well, thank you for talking to me. And thank you all for listening. This has been Audacious Compassion. If you have a question or a prompt for discussion, please submit it to us at averyweir.net. That's a v e r y dash w e i r dot net. You can find the show on Twitter at AudaciousCast. And feel free to send us prompts there, too. Yeah, we might reply back for more details. Mm -hmm. Um, You can also DM us. And please take a moment to rate us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. I am Melissa Avery Weir, and I can be found on Twitter at AveryMD. I am Gregory Avery Weir, and I can be found on Twitter at Gregory Weir. Our closing song is Invisible Light by Josh Woodward, available under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. Talk to you later. Mm-hmm.